There's wisdom that's been handed down through generations over literally thousands and thousands of years, providing us with helpful hints, sacred instructions on how to live in harmony with the planet and each other. Today, you'll get some of that wisdom delivered directly to your ears and learn how to apply it in your life and in your most intimate relationships. I'm feeling really blessed to bring you today's conversation with Sherry Mitchell. As you deep dive, it can be so helpful to have ways to communicate with your partner about the ways that you're transforming or the insights that you're having about your relationship and connection. To that end, I've put together my top three relationship communication secrets. These are specific things that you can do to stay connected with your partner when you're talking about something, no matter how challenging. To download my free guide, just visit neilsatin.com slash relate or text the word relate to the number 33444 and follow the instructions. Also, just a reminder that Relationship Alive is my offering to you so that you can have the best relationships possible. If you are finding the show to be helpful for yourself or for people that you love, please consider a show of support with a donation to ensure that we can continue. To choose something that feels right for you, just visit neilsatin.com support or text the word support to the number 33444 and follow the instructions. And just to let you know, every little bit counts. And this week, I want to thank Anne, Valerie, Angie, Cynthia, Maribeth, Kent, Sarah, Dave, and Michael. Thank you all so much for your generous support of Relationship Alive. If you have questions for me, I encourage you to record yourself asking the question and to send it to me. The email address for that is questions at relationshipalive.com. I will keep you anonymous, though I would love to be able to use your voice on air if I may. And, uh, and that way your question can be answered and benefit all those other people out there who have the same question that you do. So please email your questions to questions at relationshipalive.com. And finally, just another reminder that we have a free community on Facebook where you can find other people who listen to Relationship Alive to get support about whatever's going on with you in your relationship. We're doing our best to create and maintain a safe space for those conversations. So just come join the Relationship Alive community on Facebook. And I think that's it. So let's get on with the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of Relationship Alive. This is your host, Neil Satin. I like to bring in all kinds of ways to help us heal and grow and to take on the issues that impact us most, both in our lives, just as humans on this planet, and particularly in our closest relationships with our with our partners and 
I'm often looking for new or different ways, or in this case of what we're going to talk about today, ways that have been with us as humans for thousands of years. And there's something powerful in that. There's something powerful in the wisdom that's come down through generations and generations of connection to spirit, connection to life, connection to love, connection to wisdom. And within us being able to heal the ways that we ourselves have been brought into a culture that asks us to do one thing, like for instance, fall in love and marry someone and, and be happy with them for the rest of our days. But in the end, doesn't offer a lot in the ways of really how to do that successfully. And in fact, it could be that at the very root of how we learn to exist in this world, there are some core elements that are getting in our way. So for today's conversation, I have a very special guest who I found out about through Peter Levine in a conversation one day when I was asking him about whose work does he find or did he find to be really powerful and, and that might be a great guest for the show. And as luck would have it, uh, the person that he suggested lives right here in the, in the same state where I live in Maine. And she is the author of the recent book, Sacred Instructions, Indigenous Wisdom for Living Spirit-Based Change. Her name is Sherry Mitchell, and she is a member of the Penobscot tribe here in Maine. And she is also a distinguished lawyer and humanitarian and uh, has been working for years in the fields of international human rights. And she has several projects that are helping to heal the world at large and in the process to heal the relationships that we experience with uh, each other in all of the divisions that are happening in, in the world right now and uh, within ourselves as well. So uh, if you want to get a transcript of today's episode, then you can visit neilsatin.com slash sacred. Or as always, you can text the word passion to the number 33444 and follow the instructions. And uh, those instructions for downloading the transcript are fairly simple. You know, enter your name and email address. Today, we're going to tap into a deeper set of instructions that are here to uh, help us thrive in, uh, and change the way that we live. So uh, Sherry Mitchell, thank you so much for being here with us today on Relationship Alive. Thank you for having me, Neil. I'm wondering if we could start with that sense of kind of where we are right now that um, was something that really struck me in reading your book right off the bat this description of how our the experience that we're born into kind of sets us up for division from each other and um, in the ways that we're being instructed I'm wondering if we can start there with this sense of the ways that that Western society is perpetuating 
a sense of division that is alienating us from each other and from ways of actually healing as a, as a society. I think it's um, more than just contemporary society. This is something that has been conditioned into us, embedded into our thinking for millennia, that we have uh, at least two millennia of, of real belief in separation and this idea that difference is dangerous and that oneness means homogenization. And so when we're, when we're coming together and we're approaching one another, there's this um, inbred fear that we carry with us into those encounters. Um, and the, the discomfort that we're feeling is something that we've also been taught not to experience. Um, not to be able to be at peace with our discomfort. Any type of discomfort or pain, we're conditioned to deflect it, suppress it, project it, medicate it, avoid it at all costs. And so that prevents us from really sinking into the discomfort that naturally arises when we come together because of this conditioning and um, prevents us from moving through the masks and the walls that have been created for us by others uh, and handed down to us as uh, this epigenetic inheritance uh, within our DNA and our blood memory. And uh, in order to be able to really address that and override it, we have to really become intimate with it. And that that requires us to overcome a great deal of, of conditioning and um, ingrained thinking about how we view ourselves in the larger context of life. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's not a simple task of just realizing that uh, the idea that difference is dangerous is inherently wrong. The idea that oneness and sameness are not equal. Um, it's, it's not just overcoming um, those ideas. It's overcoming impulses that arise within our limbic system that uh, make us feel that we are in danger, that there's some threat to our lives. Um, being posed to us when we're facing this discomfort. And so, you know, we have to be able to work through all of those things and have a greater understanding of those things so that we can move forward into a path of healing that legitimately gets us to the place um, where that healing can occur. Uh, you know, one of the things that I um, have been quoted as saying is that uh, we can't uh, demand anything of others or even of ourselves if we're unwilling to create the world in which that um, thing that we're asking for can be made available to us. And so it's really about um, creating a world where that healing can actually take place. Uh, and, that, and that world that we have to create is one that is filled with understanding and awareness of where we've been and how we got here. Yeah, and yeah, there's so much to unpack in what you were just saying. So I'm just kind of like sitting there in the in the midst of all that and feeling the the power of, yeah, just how ingrained some of these responses are and also how they're not things that you would necessarily notice because they're just kind of what arise from 
well, it almost feels naturally. But I say that, and at the same time, I know that the experience, for instance, of children is is very different. So even a child who's carrying the the lineage of trauma, let's say, through their genes and their DNA, um, you know, for me, when I think about my legacy, there's there's um, this legacy of worry that that seems to have come from um, my forebearers, and I'm doing my part to heal that worry and and learn to to trust life. Um, mm-hmm. But the children, at least the young children that I know, they seem to get it in a different way. The the interconnectedness that we that we actually are a part of. So somewhere along the way, the learning happens, or the learning meets the legacy, right? And we have to unravel that somehow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I have a story from when my my son was small. He's a grown man now, um, and when he was three years old, we were getting ready to go to um, a community gathering. And I was putting his native regalia on him, you know, and I had mine on and we were getting ready to go um, out the door. And I asked him, you know, do you want to see yourself? And he excitedly said he wanted to to see himself. And he was, you know, three years old at the time. Uh, We didn't have cable in the house. Uh, I was very, very careful about what I allowed him to ingest in that way. Um, And we lived in a tribal community. So he was growing up in a very strong Native family, surrounded by Native people at that time. Uh, And when he looked at himself in the mirror, he started to cry. And I asked him, what's wrong? And he said, I don't want to be an Indian. They always kill the Indians. Wow. At three years old, wow! And it broke it broke my heart, um, and I'm I'm my mind is reeling. Where did he get this idea? We're not watching John Wayne uh, <laughs> in our living room, um, you know. There, he's certainly not surrounded by an ideology that I could pinpoint in any way that would give him this idea that he was a target because of um, his identity. And yet at three years old, he had somehow absorbed this idea and um, was able to articulate it back to me, this understanding that, you know, um, indigenous peoples are, are targeted for death. And, um, you know, that that was the point in time for me where I really started to look into more deeply the ways that we form ideas, uh, the ways that we formulate our senses of safety in the world, how we um, develop our sense of belonging. And um, probably 15 years later, I ended up working uh, for the Civil Rights Division of the Maine Attorney General's Office as an educator. And one of the um, stories that Um, came forward during one of these sessions was of a woman who, well, two women, one of whom was um, at the playground with her her child, and her child was, you know, two or three years old at the time. And a mother who was a little person uh, whose child 
um, was also a little person, came walking up to the swim, swing set. And um, her child became inconsolable. She was terrified of them. And the mother was horrified. Uh, she kept trying to make it okay, make it okay. And she could tell that the other mother was feeling really uncomfortable and that it was hurtful for her. And she was horrified to think, where would my child um, get this idea that these other human beings who look different than, than we do might be dangerous to her? And uh, there, was, there was no immediate explanation for for that um, belief that this child was acting out of. Then there was another mother who um, was a black woman who said that when her child started daycare, uh, they had had a similar reaction to another black child who had darker skin than, than they did. Mm. And so somehow this child um, saw the darker skinned black child as being a danger to them. And so we have this um, this belief within us because our our for all of our cleverness cleverness and our um, and there's air quotes around this advancement um, <laughs> we still haven't you know been able to deal with the part of of our primitive brain that recognizes difference as danger. Um, we're still responding to um, some of these challenges that come before us um, in in the world. The the certainly we're we're dealing with a higher level of stress than perhaps we have in in a very very long time. Um, not certainly not throughout history because we've had much more stressful um, times um, in our past, but uh, as a species anyway and. But we, you know, we're we're dealing with um, a degree of stress where we're getting stressful impulses presented to us throughout the day, time and time and time again. Trauma across the globe playing out on our screens in real time um, before our eyes, and and we don't have the mechanisms within our brain to be able to distinguish the difference between, um, you know, some of those things and being confronted with a saber-toothed tiger right? because we're, we're still in that place. And so, um, you know, we have to start to purposely evolve our consciousness, um, purpose, purposely work with these impulses because people um, just say, I don't know, I just have a feeling in my gut that that this, you know, that this person isn't trustworthy. Um, and I remember that there was a lot of talk about that going on when Obama was running for president. And uh, politics aside, what I think of Obama, what anybody else thinks of Obama, um, you know, isn't part of the discussion. Um, but it was interesting to me to see that there were a lot of people who couldn't point to any one thing they didn't like about him. They just said, there's just something about him that makes me feel uh, that I can't trust him or makes me feel unsafe. Uh, and when I, when I, you know, pose the question, do you think it could be that he's a black man? Um, they immediately scoffed at that idea. Um, but we have had, um, this history of, uh, leaders that look a specific way, you know, these, uh, middle to, right. um, elderly, elderly white men, um, who have become the image of acceptability for leadership. And then when people start coming along that challenge, that image, we experience some of this, um, uh, 
cognitive dissonance where we can't we can't reconcile what we're seeing, the difference in what we're seeing with what we've learned to, to be identified with as safe. And so um, we're being confronted um, rapid fire right now with all kinds of things that don't meet the imagery that we have been taught to believe is the safe norm. Um, we're experiencing that in regard to um, gender fluidity, for instance. Mm -hmm. Uh, we're experiencing that with a real change in the fabric of what leadership looks like with the um, most diverse Congress being elected um, in the history of the country. Right. You know, there's there are all kinds of all kinds of things that are cropping up and the backlash against that um, is deepening some of the trenches within our minds that are related to, um, this embedded thinking. Right. And so, yeah. Yeah. And, um, the, I mean, I'm also reflecting on relationships where, uh, the way that they tend to unfold, you fall in love and falling in love, whatever differences you, you notice in a person, we tend to find them charming or kind of gloss over them. And it, it, the initial phase of, of relationship is about finding all the ways that you're the same. And mm -hmm. then the the reckoning starts to happen when you realize how different you are and where so many people are unequipped to, to um, navigate is this terrain of, wow, you are different and that feels dangerous to me, the way that right. you're different from me. And um, so it can happen in those interpersonal, those really intimate interpersonal spaces, as well as like on the the political or or global scale, like you're describing. Mm -hmm. um, and for me, it makes me and wonder. It, like, um, well, go ahead. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say it can be as simple as uh, a difference between how we wash the dishes. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, you hear the stories all the time of like, you know, that's not how the dishes go in the dishwasher. You know, if you have a mm -hmm. dishwasher, I don't have one, but, but yeah. Um, yeah, it's hilarious. But those things aren't so hilarious when you're trapped in, a, in the middle of it and you feel like you are um, like a, a life with the person who's in front of you is, is going to be one where, where you are truly in danger. And so you're responding from that place. So whether it's in your home or, we're walking down the street. Um, it gets me really curious about now that we've identified that there is something deep within us that that um, recoils in some way from mm -hmm. what we perceive as a division between us and another. Um, what do you know about how to um, how to bridge that gap in a way that that brings? Um, that brings connection back. I think that the first step, um, as it is with so many things, is just acknowledging that there's a problem with our thinking um, and um, realizing that we don't have to uh, follow the dictates of all of the voices in our heads. Um, one of the one of the things that came to my attention years ago, um, was this realization that I had, um, this belief that things should be done a certain way. 
And one of the most common phrases in my family was, why are you doing it like that? Uh And, you know, and if you couldn't um, explain why you were doing it the way that you were doing it, um, then you were discredited. Mm -hmm. And so um, it became this this kind of um, this defensive mechanism that developed within me towards defending um, my way of doing things that caused problems in the relationship that I was in um, because uh, it it hadn't occurred to me that um, other ways might be equally as valid and that they did not pose a threat to my identity or sense of value and worth in the world. And so learning to recognize that we have these um, ways of being that actually inhibit us from sharing intimacy with those that we want to be close to. Even when we have a strong desire to be in close, intimate relationship with someone, all of these different ideas, um, I call them masks, are, are preventing us from actually seeing the face of our beloved. And so the first, the first part of that process is, is recognizing that we have these masks that are impeding our ability to see clearly um, the world that we know exists beyond our illusion. And so if we can, if we can first start to um, recognize that um, there are obstacles in our way that are preventing us from seeing clearly and begin to explore and examine them, uh, not, not in a way that uh, punishes, not in a way that pokes and prods, not in a way that tries to fix or resolve, um, but just in a way that allows us to understand more fully the um, the processes by which we come to our conclusions, then we can begin the process, step two, of engaging those beliefs and ideas and applying our critical thinking and applying our core values. What do, what do we really want to uh, bring forward into our relationship with this person? Uh, do we want to be able to um, give them full acceptance? Well, if we do, then we need to really be fully accepting of ourselves first. How can we sit with and engage these processes that are rising up within us that are going to make us very uncomfortable and just be there in the presence of those thoughts and ideas without having to respond to them? How can we be with our discomfort without having to immediately try to fix it or to apply some balm to it? project it outward. Uh, Once we can learn that there's a safe place for us to be with all of the things that make up who we are, uh, then we can begin to make space for um, sitting with someone else in that same space, that that true level of deep acceptance. Uh, And once we get to that place, how we load the dishwasher or whether we have a dishwasher becomes irrelevant, right? we are able to see something much deeper in them because we understand the complexity within ourselves and that these automatic responses aren't a reflection of who we are. They're a reflection of how we've been taught to behave. And there's a very big distinction there between the two. And so, you know, we really have to engage 
this process um, of of getting to know ourselves more deeply. And uh, I driving down the road, I can see something on the side of the road and a thought will automatically pop into my head. And I can attribute that thought to a specific relative, right? Mm -hmm. And I can say, okay, uh, thank you, uncle so-and-so. Thanks for sharing. I'm going to choose to see this differently in this moment. Um, You know, that's a process that we all have to go through. Um, And it requires us to be willing to show up in the moment that we're in um, with an awareness and to have a really heavy pause. You know, that's one of the one of the challenges I think for us is that um, there's so much rapidity. There's so much um, lack of time given to um, our our responses these days that it, it becomes a challenge. One of the things that I write about in the book is this concept of Indian time. Right. And so fascinating <clears throat> to me. To, yeah. Yeah. My, you know, that that's become kind of this cliche for being late, right? Oh, I'm running on Indian time. And I use that excuse one time when I was um, in my, in my early twenties and my grandfather sat me down and said, you know, uh, this, what you're, how you're using this term is a misrepresentation of its true meaning. Uh, that that what Indian time really is about is about taking the time to sit with something, you know, sit in circle, see it from all sides, really understand it before you make a decision. You know, it's about making the time uh, and taking the time to make a good decision and to uh, make an informed decision. We don't do that um, with ourselves. We don't take the time or make the time to sit down and to understand ourselves fully uh, and to understand the the moment that we're in fully and to recognize the different voices that are coming in that might be informing us at that time and then critically thinking about which information do I want to bring forward. We don't give ourselves that pause for that moment to, to be able to do that. And so I've, I've, um, talked to a lot of, um, people, uh, who have, uh, wanted to sit with and learn from, uh, different indigenous elders that I'm connected to. And one of the first things that I explained to them is that there is absolutely no need to fill the silence with chatter um, there's no need to fill the space with something that you can just let that space um, remain empty and be patient for what will rise up because there's a longer pause ratio um, for a lot of these indigenous elders than there is in the common way that we speak. And our tendency is that as soon as the other person stops talking, we have to fill that space with something. So as soon as the question is posed, we have to automatically give a response. If we can give ourselves a longer pause ratio between the inquiry and the answer, um, we can begin to give ourselves space to really start consciously greeting the moment that we're in. And, um, you know, that's that's a challenge for us because of the, the speed at which society is moving right now. Right. I, you're for one thing, making me super self-conscious about not just jumping in with another <laughs> with another question in this moment. Um, but I was reflecting too on 
how even in podcasts and and you have a podcast right love and revolution radio um is, are you still doing that we're not still doing that. Um, we stopped uh, a little over a year ago. We took a pause. Um, my co-host was was going through a, a challenging health crisis, and um, then we were both, you know, really, really super busy, and we were trying to figure out a way that we could um, continue to do it. So it's on pause for now. Um, we may pick it back up. Um, down the road, but but for now it's we're on sabbatical. Got it. Okay. Uh, are are older episodes available for people to listen to? Oh yeah, there are hundreds of episodes in the archives that that Great. people can listen to. Great. Um, and the reason I brought it up was I was thinking about how the trend in podcast editing is to edit out all of the spaces. I think mm -hmm. it's to maybe help people consume more content more quickly, uh, and I. Like the first time my editor did that to one of my conversations, I was like, um, it doesn't sound right. And so to me, that preserving that space is super important. And Sherry, we need to just take a quick break to talk about this week's sponsors. Our first sponsor for today is Venus et Fleur. They design customizable arrangements filled with real roses that last a year. That can make the perfect gift for birthdays, Valentine's Day, or just because. They're super long-lasting, so they're a reminder of your love and thoughtfulness long past the day that you gave them. We received a beautiful arrangement of 16 red roses, which I gave to my daughter as a belated birthday present a month ago, and she loved them. It's hard to explain exactly, but these arrangements do feel extra luxurious, and while I went for the traditional red roses, they have all sorts of different colors available to make exactly the statement that you want to make. I was actually considering the black roses, but I'm not sure my daughter would have appreciated those quite as much. So whether it's a special occasion to celebrate someone or something you're just buying for yourself as a gift of self-love, visit venusafleur.com alive and enter the promo code ALIVE for complimentary shipping. That's venusafleur.com slash ALIVE, and the way you spell that is venus, V-E-N-U-S, A, which is E-T, it's the French word for and, fleur, F-L-E-U-R, so venusafleur.com slash ALIVE, and enter the promo code ALIVE for complimentary shipping in the U.S. through February 29th at 11.59 p.m. Eastern. Our second sponsor has a special offer to help you get exactly the kind of support that you need as you're creating the web of support for yourself that we so often talk about here on Relationship Live. One way that allows you to connect with a professional counselor in an online environment that's safe and private is today's sponsor, BetterHelp. With BetterHelp, you can get help on your own time and at your own pace. Along with scheduling video or phone sessions, you can also just chat and text with your therapist. They're affordable and financial aid is available for those who qualify. So whether it's anxiety, depression, communication, stress, grief, whatever it is, definitely consider BetterHelp as a way to help you transform your stuck places. And best of all, it's a truly affordable option because as a Relationship Alive listener, you get 
10% off your first month with the discount code ALIVE. So why not get started today? Just go to betterhelp.com alive. Simply fill out the questionnaire that helps them assess your needs to get you matched with a counselor that you'll love. That's betterhelp.com alive. And now let's get back to our conversation about sacred instructions with today's guest, Sherry Mitchell. I'm wondering if you could share your a little bit of your story around, because um, this is the part that really was fascinating to me, was this sense of things can sometimes take a long time. And you mention the, um, the dreams that you kept having and not knowing if it was a sign of something that you were supposed to do in this lifetime or if you were simply meant to hold the story and that and pass it on to the next generation. And as I was reading that, I was just thinking about how different that is from, I think, the, the more conventional perspective, which is kind of like, I need to do something now. Like, it's up to me to affect change in this world or it's up to me to whatever it is versus like, no, this could be, I could just be a steward of this idea um, for someone else to carry at when the time is right. Yeah. So the, the story you're talking about relates to um, one of our prophecies. And I had been having a dream since I was a small child, since I was about four years old, this recurring dream uh, about being in this place where um, runners were sent out in every direction through this mound space and these underground tunnels and and people from all over the world came and um, and a seed was brought up at the end by the elders that I was asked to go and retrieve and um, that seed was the seed of the origins of our relationship and so when I started in my 20s, when I started telling the elders about that dream, um, you know, I had been having that dream at that point in time for close to 20 years. And um, they said, well, that dream is connected to the prophecy of the reopening of the Eastern Doorway. Uh, the Eastern Doorway is where uh, creation sits and those things that are created under the Eastern Doorway uh, then grow and move to the West, which is uh, the gateway through which life leaves this earth. And so uh, the relationships that were formed here under this Eastern doorway, this spiritual gateway um, between the indigenous peoples and the newcomers was forged in blood. And so that seed was damaged uh, and it was toxic. And um, the dream was a reflection of that and that, you know, there was a time that was going to come when we would have to come back under the Eastern doorway to heal that seed of that relationship that had begun and to make new sacred contracts with one another, new sacred agreements with one another um, as human beings to live in a different way in relationship to one another and then to also live in, in a different way in relationship to the rest of life. Um, you know, so I, I had that dream, uh, as you said, for uh, 43 years before anything ever came of it. And, um, I had I had talked to the elders about it, and they had confirmed that um, that this is what this was connected to, and and um, I brought it up again, you know, five years, ten years, uh, and um, you know, asked when are we going to 
um, hold this ceremony that this prophecy talks about because we, you know, we've, um, we've got some real problems going on here in the world that need to be addressed in relation to how we're relating to one another, how we're engaging one another. And uh, the elders uh, in the way that they do just said, oh, well, they'll let us know when it's time. And so that went on for, for a long period of time. And then um, one of the clan mothers from my territory pulled me aside one day after ceremony and said, you know, I've been thinking about uh, this dream. And she said, and, and uh, sometimes she said, it's not for us to act on. She said, uh, maybe you're just meant to be the keeper of that story. And what I want you to do is, is when you... Um, go out and do the because I was working with indigenous spiritual elders from all over the world at that point um, she said what I want you to do is every time you go to be with these spiritual elders in their territories whenever you're in ceremony with them I want you to tell them that story and um, keep that story alive and make sure that you're telling it to our young people too so that they can keep passing that story on and so uh, that's what I did and I did that for a long period of time, and then in uh, 2016, I got a phone call from one of the elders from the South that I had been working with um, for more than 20 years, and he said to me, um, "Your that dream that you told us about came up in our ceremony this past weekend, and I think that there's um, there's something." coming up in connection to that, so you might want to talk to your people. Uh, right after that, I got another call from another elder from the West who said the same thing, um, who said, uh, we did ceremony this past weekend, and um, that dream that you told us about when you were here came up in that ceremony um, with a couple of people, and and I think uh, you need to tell, tell your people about that. And uh, then I got a a call from another uh, grandmother who was in the north um, who said, uh, I had a dream last night that you were telling me again that story about your dream. And um, and then I told her about the other two calls that I had, had received. And she said, yeah, it's time to to sit down with your people and talk about that. So I called my clan mothers and some of the hereditary chiefs that um, – uh, from our region, the spiritual leaders, and and we got together and talked about it, and um, they said, yeah, we've been getting signs as well that now it's time. So, um, you know, 43 years after I started having that dream, um, I got this uh, instruction from my elders because uh, I asked them, well, when are you going to do the ceremony? And they laughed at me and they said, no, you're going to do the ceremony and we're going to support you. And what you're going to do is you're going to invite all the elders, uh, the indigenous spiritual elders that you've worked with over the past 20 years, uh, 25 years to um, come and support you and to be here with us for this gathering. And so that's what that's what happened. And, and they came and we had people from six continents that came um, to share in the ceremony with us. And uh, it's a 21 year ceremony that goes to all of the directions. And um, it's gonna be uh, the fourth year for the ceremony is gonna be this coming summer here uh, 
in our territory and um, before it travels to the south. And so it's grown every single year where people from all over the world are coming to sit with us in ceremony to heal their relationships with one another as human beings and to heal their relationship with Mother Earth and the rest of creation. And it's just um, become this incredibly beautiful thing to witness. Uh, I feel like I'm, I'm just standing in the doorway of it and um, and watching it unfold. It has a life of its own. And so, um, you know, that's an example of just being patient um, with the information that's coming in, that there may not be an immediacy to the response to it. Uh, it may be that the story is building and being created within you. And so, uh, that's why the last chapter of the book is talks about what does it mean for us to be living in a time of prophecy? What are our roles um, as as witnesses to prophecy? Is it just this passive uh, spectator type event, or are we meant to meaningfully engage with the prophecies that are unfolding around us? And how do we know when the time is right? Um, to, to do that. And uh, I think that um, what we've learned to do with some of the information that's coming in for us is um, we've learned to do something symbolic around it rather than actually diving in deeper and um, being clear about what the right movement is. We just do something, even if it's not the right thing, um, because we have this immense need to keep moving. And uh, what ends up happening is that um, we have these large-scale symbolic gestures that occur that um, don't really deal with healing mm -hmm. on a deep level, the root of the issues that are being um, discussed. Right, right. You're... I mean, just hearing you describe this process is so moving to me. And, and I find myself wondering, um, yeah, as we, as we kind of sit in a moment of uh, indecision or, or being really impacted and, and trying to take in, you know, the, the fact that we might be looking at the world or at a particular situation through a mask that we're wearing. Um, how, from your perspective, how do we invite the, the, the deeper knowing and, and also be able to recognize it when it arrives? Well, I think that one of the things that is most important, um, that I wrote about in the book is about really coming to know the teacher within um, because we, um, we tend to be led so easily by the opinions of others who we hold in high esteem. And so um, my advice to, to people is to really take the time to cultivate a relationship with that teacher within, the one who um, holds your highest level of truth, the one that is most aligned with your deepest and purest self. And then no matter what 
you're given for advice from another, you know, whether it be me or um, some other figure that people hold in esteem, they're able to process that through um, this knowing that lives deep within us um, to gauge whether or not it's in alignment with their highest truth. And so I think that that, that question is, is somewhat subjective depending on, on what one's um, deepest truth may be. Uh, for me, that process is about being able to allow our ourselves to be um, still allow ourselves to learn um, when we're hearing the voice of truth within us and when we're hearing a pre-recorded message of somebody else's ideas, right? So it all kind of comes back to the same thing. Um, and being able to open up um, this space within us. So we have uh, one of our creation stories, which is not in this book. It's going to be in the second book, the follow-up book, um, Sacred Laws, um, talks about uh, Kachiniwesk and Ekchamundo, the sacred feminine and the sacred masculine. And so uh, the sacred masculine is this, um, this pool of energy, this pool of matter, unrealized potential that just sits there stable, waiting, and is not animated and brought into form until Kachiniwesk, the sacred feminine, speaks into it and creates vibration and frequency that create the form that emerges. And so that feminine, interior, um, divine, creative, uh, intuitive knowing is, is what speaks into form the physical manifestations um, that we create out in the world. And it's that dance between the masculine and feminine um, and being able to realize that we all have that exact thing within us. We have that, that pool of possibility, that field of matter, um, that masculine action-oriented activity out in the physical world uh, element that's waiting within us to be formed. Um, and the division that we've created between the voice of the sacred feminine and the movement of the sacred masculine has created a rift in, in the forms that are being created. So we have this real imbalanced creation that is moving out into our physical reality because we haven't learned to heal that rift between the sacred masculine and the sacred feminine within us. And when we are able to do that, then we hear the heart-based wisdom, the intuitive guidance of um, that sacred feminine, and it guides us to create the forms and the movement out in the physical world that are going to be a balanced representation of wholeness from within us. And so if we want to be able to really get in that space where we know that what we're creating, what we're moving out in the physical world is a true representation of, of our highest knowing and heart-based wisdom, we have to be able to heal that, um, 
that division between the sacred masculine and the sacred feminine within us. And so that process of, of engaging that teacher within um, introduces us lovingly to those aspects of ourselves that have been divided, that have been fragmented off, that have been broken down into commodified saleable parts, and that pr- prevent us from emerging as whole beings in the world today, which we're needed as whole beings in the world today. That's how we offer our our gifts to the world. What we were born for exists within our wholeness. And so if we want to be able to realize um, the purpose that we were born for, we have to be able to emerge as whole human beings. And you know, part of that process is healing the division between our our body and our spirit, healing the division between our sacred masculine and our sacred feminine, healing the division between our higher truth and the ideas that have been embedded into our into our ways of being. And so all of that healing has to take place in order for us to uh, be able to show up in the world in the ways that we were meant for. And so that that's how that process unfolds for me that's how i see it um but like i said that's you know that's um something that people have to arrive um at that place in their own ways and and with their own understandings that was such a beautiful way of also like summing up so many things that we've touched on in this conversation um i'm wondering if we have time for one more question before before you go Sure. Um, I'm curious about when when you find that you're someone who is engaged in this process of connecting with your your inner teacher and confronting the masks that you're wearing and and operating from this place of how do I heal the divisions? How do I create this wholeness? How do you hold yourself in relationship to people who maybe aren't going through that process for themselves and you know obviously that's possible again in the world at large and and often this comes up in relationships right where someone is kind of the growth focused person and the other person just kind of has their head down and and doesn't care or doesn't care to engage in that way Yeah, I think it's a challenge um, at times to do that. And um, a conversation that I had with my ex-husband one day while I was making dinner and he was standing on the other side of the counter from me as I was chopping up vegetables and we were talking about something and he was just standing there looking at me dumbfounded and, and, you know, we had been together for quite a long time uh, at this point in time. And I asked him, what's what's wrong? And he said, I just realized that this isn't a phase. Like, you really do want to save the world, and I just want to live in it. <laughs> and and um, I said, well, somebody has to make sure you have a good place to live. <laughs> and, you know, then we just went back to cooking dinner. But that that moment was the beginning of the end of our relationship. Mm-hmm. Um because um, there was a level of simplicity, uh, a level of detachment that he felt most comfortable in, that I would never feel comfortable in because I was uh, this voracious seeker of truth. Um, that you know, I came, I came in with a fire that drove me to seek 
levels of truth on many different fronts, uh, you know, spiritually, socially, in regard to justice, uh, all of these issues that were um, really feeding this fire within me that I had been born with because that was what I was born for. Um, and we were able to sit down together and to acknowledge that um, we wanted very different things for our lives going forward and that um, the pathway leading into the future for us um, was not a pathway that uh, merged any longer. <laughs> These pathways were, were divergent, um, but we were able to sit in ceremony together and lovingly untangle the ties that we had made to one another and to wish each other well on that um, pathway that we would each be traveling into the future um, with love and respect for one another. Uh, that doesn't mean that whenever you get to these places of of, um, of division that you have to separate from the ones that you love. But sometimes uh, the greatest act of love that we can offer someone is to just uh, accept who they are and where they are and, um, and to allow them to continue to flourish into who they are becoming. And um, we can do that with them, in relationship with them, um, uh, in in close proximity, or we can do that with them in relationship with them um, with some physical separation. And only the individuals who are involved in that moment in time together can decide, um, do, do we do this? Is it a continue act, continued act of love for us to continue to walk this pathway together? Because we, again, we're, we're filled with all of these ideas of what we're supposed to do, who we're supposed to be what it's supposed to look like for us. And when that doesn't resonate with our truth, we find ourselves in constant conflict. So we have to get to a place where we're doing that meaningful work in a way that aligns with our deepest truth. And in order to get to that deepest truth, we have to move through all of the filters and the tapes that we've been carrying with us that tell us who we're supposed to be. Um, you know, who I feel I was meant to be in the world um, is not a person that could have sacrificed their own dreams in order to fulfill somebody else's need at that moment in time. And um, the love that that other person had for me um, was such that they did not want to restrict who I was becoming uh, in order to make them feel safe in the world. Mm -hmm. And and so, you know, we have to be able to um, hold ourselves, I think, to... Um, that that moment of fire and try to see each other with eyes of of real love like is this is this person um, that I see before me someone that I am capable of giving absolute acceptance to regardless of what that means to me am I allowing this person to become who they're choosing to become um, in a way that is meaningful and in alignment with their own truth, or am I trying to restrict them based on my own fear? Am I capable of dealing with my fear in this moment and allowing them uh, to become, while allowing myself to become as well, um, without running away? Right. So this, there's this element of running away that we do that is not about consciously thinking about um, 
how can I best love this person in this moment in truth? Right. And I think that that place right there is the juicy bit of life. Uh, can we sit with the discomfort that we're feeling? Can we uh, deal with our ego? Can we deal with our fear and our need to control? Can we just get to that spot of, of real love and acceptance and then from that place, looking at each other without having to fix or to change or to judge or explain, choose to accept each other in that moment and cycle forward uh, into whatever future it is that we're holding the dream of within us together. Or if it's a more loving um, act to allow our paths to diverge at that point in time. And I don't think that people do that. I think that people, um, you know, people throw around this, this term, uh, conscious uncoupling right now. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, I think that there's, there's an element of beauty in that, um, that, um, we don't always have to be what somebody else wants us to be and still, be uh, demonstrating acts of love, that sometimes it's an act of love to say, um, I'm sorry that this conflict exists between us. Uh, I, I'm, you know, going to stand here firmly in my own truth. Um, and I'm going to lovingly accept what comes up for you in this moment. And hopefully you can look at me with some loving acceptance about what's coming up for me in this moment. And we can make space for each other to be uncomfortable and then to settle into the real baseline love that we have for one another and be able to discuss this in a way that allows us to both become the most whole versions of ourselves and to make a decision in that moment on what's best for us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you. And I think that that's such an important element of moving the paradigm of relationship in a, in a more whole direction than, than the ways that, you know, historically, the way that we've bound ourselves to each other without really thought of everything that you just named, um, the way that mm -hmm. that's creating challenges for people that don't necessarily need to need to be perpetuated so uh so yes the way that you know i was i had um the gottmans here in maine recently john and julie gottman um for a live version of my show here in portland and as i was sitting with them i was I had this thought which is that so much of the energy that we've put into um how to make relationships work how to help people succeed in relationships has like been based on this presupposition that longevity is somehow the marker of success in a relationship. And so if you take that as a given, then then from that point unfold all of these things that are about like fostering longevity. Um, the, the lens changes a little bit when you're looking at it from a place of who am I, who am I meant to be when I get past what I've been told I should be and who are you meant to be and how can we love each other in that and how can we make choices sometimes really challenging choices but but be rooted in that love for each other even when it represents a divergence or an acknowledgement of of some core differences 
Yeah, I think what tends to happen is that people um, let go of and sacrifice pieces of themselves in order to um, achieve that goal of longevity that is the social standard of success. And uh, one of the things that I do in one of my trauma workshops is I give participants um, a meditation um, to have them go into each relationship that they they have and ask themselves, uh, what aspects of myself have I had to give up in order to be in relationship with this person? What dreams of mine have I let go in order to be in relationship with this person? Um, what parts of myself have had to be suppressed in order to make this this person happy? And then to um, look at the way that 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 um, giving away of aspects of themselves has actually led to a lot of the problems that rise up in the relationship because you're no longer the person that that other person thought you were, but you're also no longer the person that you know yourself to be. So you're in conflict mm-hmm. um, continuously. And so uh, we've, we've been raised uh, under this capitalist system that leads us to believe that we are either a consumer or a commodity. And so we are constantly looking for ways to sell ourselves, whether that be to our friends, to our families, to our faith communities, to our employers, to our potential partners. Um, we look for the aspects of ourselves that we believe are going to be most saleable to that um, that other that we want to be in relationship with, that we want to create this sense of inclusivity and belonging with, and we sacrifice the aspects of ourselves that we don't feel line up. And in doing so, we never, ever know if we in and of ourselves are lovable because we're only putting forward an image that we believe will be acceptable to um, whoever that other is. And so the aspects of ourselves that we hide um, become cloaked in shame uh, and in fear that if they escape, we're no longer going to be lovable because we've made this contractual agreement um, on a spiritual level to only show this aspect of ourselves that we feel is going to be acceptable. And so, uh, you know, when we're in that situation, which is a majority of the world, um, we don't know if we, the wholeness of who we are, is truly lovable. And so we live in constant fear of losing the love that we have put forward conditionally. We've put ourselves forward to be loved conditionally rather than unconditionally. And so we have to have the courage to bring forward all aspects of ourselves. Uh, and it's so cliched at this point in time, right? But the, the courage that's required to be able to do that is phenomenal. It's phenomenal because we all need a sense of belonging, yeah. connectivity, inclusivity. And the the threat of losing that registers in our primitive brain as um, being ostracized at a time when our connectivity was absolutely crucial for our physical survival. And so it wasn't very long ago that when somebody was ostracized or moved beyond the pale, right, that... Um, that they were no longer guaranteed safety right? because they didn't have the safety of the group. And so we actually 
we actually recognize that in our bodies, this this fear of not belonging, this fear of not being included um, is equated with actual death in our physiology, the way that our body chemically responds to it. And so we have to be willing to work with that system so that we can evolve it, so that we can consciously evolve it into realizing uh, when it, what is the real threat here? The real threat is death to our whole selves. Mm-hmm. death to our own truth um, in order to barter for acceptability that's conditional. And can we have the courage to move beyond that? Can we have the courage to show up um, with all of our, our parts um, available to be seen and see if we can be accepted as we are? Um, that's the real dance that we have with ourselves um, in order to be able to have truly intimate, truly loving relationships with others. Well, what you're talking about is something that's impacted me personally very recently. So I'm, I'm really taking that all in very deeply. And uh, I think my, my wish for all of you listening is that you feel inspired to be courageous in this absolutely essential and cliche way <laughs> of, yeah. of, of, discovering who you are and and being willing to offer that courageously um, in the world. Um, Sherry Mitchell, it's been such a pleasure to talk with you today. Um, your book, Sacred Instructions, Indigenous Wisdom for Living Spirit-Based Change is so full of good stuff. We've only really scratched the surface today. Um, so. Um, I definitely recommend checking the book out and I'm excited to hear that there's another one in the works. Um, when's that mm-hmm. due to come out? Do you have a sense? Or? I'm not sure if it'll be out in 2020 or early 2021. I'm hoping it'll be out by the end of 2020. Got it. Well, that will be, yeah. that's definitely something to look forward to. I hope we can have you back on the show to, to uh, chat about it. That would be wonderful. And um, if people want to find out more about you, um, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, They can go to my website, sacredinstructions.life, or they can follow me on social media. Uh, My my, um, public Facebook page is at facebook.com slash sacredinstructions. And I do have Instagram, but I'm terrible about social media. I, I need... I need to have somebody come along. I've, I've accepted that about myself. Uh, I, Same, uh, yeah. You know, that's just not not the thing that I do well, um, and so I'm I'm constantly searching for the the technology person who can help to deal with that aspect of my life. But I I do my best. Well, hopefully you can call that person in. Um, yeah. So that people can, you know, watch your life from the outside and hopefully come <laughs> and participate um, through. I mean, it sounds like you're offering workshops and the ceremonies that that you're hosting um, sounds so powerful. So um, it, and again, if you want to get a transcript of today's episode, just visit neilsatin.com slash sacred or text the word passion to the number three, three, four, four, four. Sherry Mitchell, your um, your native name I'm going to ask, just invite you to say it. It means she who brings the light. And I, I definitely feel like you've been bringing the light today to, uh, to me and to our listeners. 
Oh, thank you. Uh, so we say in our language, Kachiwili one, and uh, Basilda and Dolnabamuk, that the words that I offer for all my relations and, and my name it, in my language is uh, Wanahamukwasit. Thank you so much. It's so good to meet you and be with you today. Yeah, you too. Thank you so much, Neil. Thank you for listening to another episode of Relationship Alive. If you like what you've heard and want to make it easier for other people to find out about us, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast and to rate and review us on iTunes. If you have questions or comments or want to continue the conversation, you can always join our Relationship Alive community Facebook group. And for more information about today's episode, visit us online at neilsatin.com slash podcast. Or you can always text the word PASSION, P-A-S-S-I-O-N, to the number 33444 for more information. Finally, do you have a burning question that you're hoping we can have answered here on Relationship Alive, either for a future or past guest? Let me know and I'll see what I can do. Take care and see you next time.